Hi, this is Pastor Scott Shuffield, pastor of Karen Seniors. Thanks for joining us today for this very special time of worship. Today, in addition to times of prayer, worship, and preaching, we will also be observing communion, as we normally do on the first Sunday of each month. If you haven't gathered the elements that you will be using to participate in communion yet, I would encourage you to have them ready. We will celebrate communion after the sermon. Feel free to pause this video if you need more time to gather the elements. Just a reminder that what you use is not important, because even what we use when we are all together is symbolic. We look at the juice and crackers as an outward symbol that points to the greater spiritual reality of Jesus' crucifixion. So take some time to gather those elements and come back. I want to remind you that next week is Easter. Although we won't be able to gather in one place, we will still be together, and it will still be awesome. We will be hosting a special digital service at 1045 a.m. on our Facebook page. You can find us by searching for First Alliance Church Erie on whatever device you are using now. I encourage you to invite a friend, co-worker, or family member by sending them this link. You can watch on Facebook or YouTube as well. If you were like me, you normally give your tithe or offering at church on Sunday. Since our physical gatherings have been canceled for the foreseeable future, we have made it easy for you to send your gifts in the comfort of your own home. You can go to facerie.org backslash giving and click the Give Now button. You can give a one-time gift, or you can set it up your giving to be recurring and automatic. Again, that is facerie.org backslash giving and click the Give Now button. And of course, you can mail your gift directly to the church office at 2939 Zimmerly Road, 16506. During these uncertain times, your tithes and gifts are more important than ever. So for however often and no matter how you give, we say a big thank you. Finally, if you're experiencing a need of any kind during this pandemic, First Alliance Church is here for you. Do you need someone to help pick up groceries or, or a prescription? Do you need some financial help? Or perhaps you just want an encouraging phone call. We have set up an online form for you so that you can communicate any one of those needs to us. You can find that form on FAC's homepage, fac.erie.org, and click on the We Are Here For You message. Now, let's transition into worship. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10. through 10. The Apostle Paul wrote, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you remember being in a job interview and dreading the inevitable question, what are some of your weaknesses? You knew that question was coming, and you had an answer prepared. Do you know what Paul would have said in that situation? He would have highlighted his weaknesses. Paul had just described a problem he had, which he had prayed for the Lord to remove. We are often reluctant to talk about our weaknesses. Instead, we try to conceal them in order to present ourselves in the best possible light. We do not like to admit that perhaps there is something weak in us. We are living in a time when every one of us feels weak in some way. Have you been laid off or worried that you might be? 
Are you concerned about your health or the health of someone you dearly love? Are you concerned about being able to get the stuff on your grocery list? Paul was open about his weaknesses. In fact, in this passage, he says he would gladly boast about them. How could he have that attitude? Because Paul knew that in the midst of human weakness, Christ's power is perfectly strong. If human frailties and circumstances out of his control could more clearly show God's strength, then Paul would gladly disclose his own weaknesses. So in this time when we feel weak or that our circumstances are out of our control, let's instead boast about the strength of the loving God we serve. When I am weak, he is strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning during our service, may you be glorified and may we find our strength and our solace in you. Amen.
scripture says, let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And our song is hallelujah, so would you sing that with us? We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome, we sing thank you that you endured the cross you endured the shame all the pain lord on behalf of us you took our spot you took our place and lord we praise you that you are seated at the right hand of the father and you are totally and completely in control lord we praise you we thank you and we lift a hallelujah to you today jesus in your awesome and wonderful and loving name we pray amen Hey, FAC family, Pastor Mike here. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses 17 through 35 today. Um, we're going to take a break for the next couple of weeks from the book of Acts. We've been very diligent studying through that uh, book, and I've been pleased with our progress so far. Uh, the book of Acts 
can really be divided into about three or four major chunks. And last week we actually finished that first portion. And so it's a really good place naturally for us to just take a break. And um, when you consider the timing with uh, this week being Palm Sunday and uh, we're going into Easter week, our attention really should turn to just some events uh, that happened during that final week before Jesus would be crucified and before he was resurrected. You know, we call this Holy Week, and all four Gospels spend a considerable amount of time um, describing the events that surrounded Jesus and his disciples uh, leading up to his death and resurrection. And so today we're going to take a look at one of those events that happens right smack dab in the middle of Holy Week. It happens on that Thursday, the day before Jesus would be crucified. I chose this specific passage because it speaks directly to communion. Uh, As mentioned before, it is a communion service for us. We we typically celebrate communion as a church family on the first Sunday uh, of the month. And uh, typically we take communion before the sermon, but I'd like to switch it up a little bit today and uh, take communion after the sermon. My, My hope is that today's text will show you how important our participation in communion really is and why we don't intend to stop practicing communion together as a church family, even if we are unable to gather physically. Before we get into the passage, though, let me also encourage you to take time this week to read through the gospel message, each gospel account of Holy Week, so that you can familiarize yourself with the events of Easter. Uh, to make it easier for you, we've found a reading plan that uh, you can use uh, for this week to help you navigate through the story. We'll actually provide a link to that reading plan in the comment section of this video uh, below if you would like to participate in that. It's just something to help you prepare your heart for uh, Easter next Sunday. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word together. Once again, I'm going to read from Matthew 26, verse 17, all the way through verse 35. This is what uh, Matthew writes. He says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, uh, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the uh, table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Heavenly Father, we lift up our study of the Word to you. We ask, Father, that your words um, would be illuminated in our minds and would transform our hearts, Father. I ask that you would uh, be known, that we would be known by you, and that uh, we would draw closer to you, Father. We thank you for your good word. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. If you're even slightly familiar with music from the 60s, you'll probably, uh, you've probably heard the classic hit song, Stand By Me, that was written and performed by Ben E. King. Now, for your benefit, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I do want to draw your attention to the first couple of verses in the song. In verse 1, it starts with the line, When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see, no, I won't be afraid, oh, I won't be afraid, just as long as you stand, stand by me. Verse 2 continues in a similar fashion when King sings, If the sky that we look upon should stumble and fall or the mountain should crumble to the sea, I won't cry, I won't cry, no, I won't shed a tear just as long as you stand by me. This is a feel-good song that's saying, hey, no matter how dark it gets, no matter what happens in life, no matter how much the world falls around me, I'll be all right. I won't be afraid. I won't cry as long as you're by my side. The song speaks to the power of friendship and companionship and how important it is and how important it is to have that person that you can depend on when things get hard, when times get tough. It gets gives this impression that as long as I have friends, I can face the day, right? I can face the day as long as I have friends that I can depend on, as long as I have friends that are by my side that will stand by me. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been walking very closely with 12 friends. He calls them his disciples, the word disciple simply means followers, and they are indeed his closest buddies as they've been walking hand in hand with him uh, for three years now. As Jesus' public ministry started, he initially called on some fishermen to be his first disciples, and ever since that moment, the story is not only about Jesus, but of Jesus and his disciples they're just kind of always around uh, with Jesus every day. And even when the, the stories of Jesus primarily focus on his teaching or his activity or his actions, the, the disciples are always kind of hanging out in the background. 
Very rarely do we read about Jesus being alone in his ministry endeavors. And so when we come to our passage, um, Jesus is telling these close friends, hey, my time is at hand. This means that Jesus knows that the hour of crucifixion is drawing near, um, the, the, that the clock ticks closer and closer to his impending death. And, and you would think that as Jesus descends into his darkest moment, that these 12 men, which he has walked closely with and invested in for the last three years, you would think that they would stand by him. That Jesus, with confidence, could sing that when the night has come and the land is dark, no, I won't be afraid just as long as you stand by me. As we read, though, we will find that this isn't the case. Within mere hours of this passage that we read, the disciples, those close friends of Jesus who declared loyalty to him no matter what, they will abandon him. Before that happens, though, Jesus takes the opportunity to prepare them for what's to come. And he takes one more opportunity to teach his disciples about who he is and what he's come to do. And he, he teaches them through the context of what we know as the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper because it's the last meal that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples before he would be put to death. Um, but we have to understand that this was no ordinary meal. The context of this passage, the backdrop, the setting of this meal is Passover. We find in verses 17 through 19 that they are making preparations for the Passover meal. Passover was and is an annual week-long festival that the Jewish people celebrate. And at the beginning of the week, Jewish families and friends would gather for a, for a Passover meal, which commemorates and retells the story of the Israelite exodus from Egypt. Um, this was the the pinnacle of the Passover celebration. Uh, if you need a refresher, the story can be found in Exodus 11, through, uh, 11 and 12 near the beginning of the Bible. Basically, the story tells about the Israelite ancestors who were in bondage to Egypt, and they would cry out to God for deliverance and salvation. And God intervenes and stretches out his mighty hand on their behalf. Uh, towards the end of the story, God rains down ten plagues of wrath on the Egyptians. And in the final plague, God declares to Moses that he is going to strike down the firstborn of every family in the land of Egypt. But he does provide a way out for the Israelites to be spared from such wrath. He instructs them to sacrifice an innocent, spotless lamb and then to take the blood of this lamb and paint it on the doorframe of their house so that this spirit of death would pass over their house, which is where we get the term Passover. Sure enough, this happens, and it drives Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery. The entire nation is vindicated and delivered in that moment. 
And so you can see this is a huge deal. If this uh, were to happen today, this would be worldwide news. So, of course, an event as significant as this, the Jewish people are going to celebrate it. An event of this magnitude needs to be remembered and celebrated, much like how we celebrate historical events in our nation's history, like Independence Day or Thanksgiving. This festival was a big deal for the Jewish people, and once again, this meal was the pinnacle of their celebration. And as they shared the meal, they wouldn't hastily gorge on the food like we might at Thanksgiving, but rather there was a certain order to how the meal is conducted. And they would take their time working through the meal, and each bit of food and each bit of drink is filled to the brim with symbolism that points to varying aspects of the Exodus story. So as you move through this meal, the head of the household would explain the different elements and what they represent. It was a ritual meal. And what happens over the course of several hours is that the Exodus story, the story of how God relates to his people, how God delivered his people, this story is retold through the meal. The experience of Exodus is retold through reciting scripture and singing and praying and eating and smelling and, and engaging with each other and all, and all of the above. If you were partaking in this meal, you would be playing an active role in the story of Exodus. You'd be playing an active role in participating in Israelite history. And so this is the meal that Jesus and his disciples are enjoying in verses 20 through 29 in our passage. And Jesus is the one who is explaining the elements according to Jewish custom. And then all of a sudden, out of left field, Jesus goes off script in verses 26 through 29. Now this would have been startling for the disciples because they've celebrated Passover and have participated in this meal every single year of their life. And once again, everything had order, everything was scripted, and, and they would hear the same language over and over and over again every single year. They'd be familiar with the order, and then all of a sudden, Jesus says something new. Jesus says something Different, something that the disciples have never heard before when they have participated in the Passover meal. This would be like if you listen to your mom and dad tell a story to someone that you have heard a million times. You're so familiar with the story that you could actually tell it yourself. And as you hear your parents, your mom or your dad telling the story to somebody, uh, it would be like them introducing a new part of the story that you've never heard before. When that happens, if it were to happen, your ears would perk up. It would capture your attention. This moment in the Last Supper would stand out to the disciples as Jesus deviates from the norm. And what does he say? He, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, take and eat. This is my body. And then... He took the cup and, and said to take a drink, for this is my blood of the covenant. 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus doing here? This seems odd. He's offering up a new interpretation of the Passover meal. He's inserting himself into the story. He's saying this bread and this wine now carry new symbolism. This bread and this wine now point to my death, which must happen so that your sins would be forgiven, so that your sins would be redeemed. In the Passover meal, there would traditionally be four cups of wine consumed over the course of the meal. One commentator writes that the four cups uh, represent four expressions of deliverance uh, promised by God. And each of these cups have a name. The first one that you drink at the very beginning of the meal, it's the first thing that you do, is called the cup of sanctification. And then later on there's a second cup called the, the cup of wrath. And you would drink this cup of wrath right before you ate the, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And the Passover lamb was like the main course of the meal. And then there was a third cup that you would drink right after you ate the Passover lamb. And this was the cup of redemption. This cup originally represented the blood of the sacrificial lamb and that was used to paint the doorposts in Egypt. It, it was a symbol of redemption. This cup was a symbol of God's providential plan and how he would deliver and save through this channel of what we would call substitution. Basically, that someone would live because this lamb died in his or her place. This third cup, this cup of redemption that symbolized the blood of the sacrificial lamb, this is the cup that Jesus uses when he tells his disciples, this is my blood in the covenant. And so there's actually a transition of sorts here. Jesus is inserting himself specifically into the role of the sacrificial lamb in the Exodus story. And you'll notice that there's no mention of them eating the lamb in this text because the lamb is sitting with them. Right before Jesus' ministry begins, three years prior to this event, Jesus is walking down the street and his cousin, John the Baptist, actually shouts out to everyone, look, Look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God, and everyone would perhaps understand that title. They, they would understand the concept of a sacrificial lamb, but they wouldn't understand at that point how it pertains to Jesus. They, they, they probably were standing around saying, Ah, John, you, you crazy kook. Have you had too much to drink? What are you, what are you talking about? But now, three years later, as Jesus inserts himself into the Passover meal, he makes it very clear that he is not only the Passover lamb, but he replaces the Passover lamb. This is the new way that God relates to his people, and it's going to replace the old way. The Passover lamb represents salvation, 
It represents deliverance. It represents freedom from bondage in Egypt. And just as the Passover's uh, lamb's blood released the Israelites from physical bondage, Jesus, as the new Passover lamb, releases mankind from spiritual bondage. Just as a lamb died as a substitution so that the wrath of God would pass over the Israelites, Jesus dies as a substitution so that the wrath of God would pass over our sin. That's the point that Jesus gets to in this explanation, this new interpretation of the Passover meal. He says it right there in verse 28. There is, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's the point of all this? Why does Jesus take the time to reinterpret the Passover meal? What's the point of this object lesson? Why does he even have to pour out his blood as a sacrifice? Because we are sinners. We are sinners. And left to ourselves, we stand opposed to God. Without any kind of intervention from Jesus, we will and we have rejected and abandoned God. We see this come through in our passage. Two primary examples come through. As they're celebrating the Passover, um, this celebration, there is a cloud that looms over their meal because Jesus knows that his death is coming and that his betrayer that will lead to his death, that will hand him over, is actually among them. As they're eating the meal, Jesus says in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this sends them all just into a frenzy. This is actually the moment that Leonardo da Vinci tries to capture in his painting of The Last Supper. It's the snapshot, if you will, where the disciples first hear that one of them is going to portray Jesus. And they uh, frantically try and figure out who that is. Or they start questioning and, and doubt is raised. And, they, and they, they start getting worried because, after all, this is such a tight-knit group of friends. They're, they're saying, we've been through so much together. How could anybody betray you, Jesus? And then they start getting kind of concerned and they ask Jesus, is it, is it me, Lord? It certainly couldn't be me, right? I'm not capable of that. Am I? I wouldn't do something like that, would I? And then we come to Judas. At this point, Judas has already set in motion the betrayal. He has already agreed to hand over Jesus to the authorities. So he very well knows that it's him. Yet he tries to save face. He doesn't want to be found out, and so he just goes along with the group. He uh, goes along and very insincerely looks to Jesus and says, Is it I, Rabbi? Now you'll notice that the other disciples actually referenced Jesus as Lord. There's a sense of submission They've given him lordship of their life. They've allowed Jesus to take ownership of their life. 
But Judas doesn't use that title. He doesn't call him Lord. He calls Jesus Rabbi, which simply means teacher. You see, there is no lordship here. And in fact, there never was. There are no accounts of Judas ever referring to Jesus as Lord throughout the Gospels. Let me encourage you to learn from Judas's failure and to submit to Jesus as Lord. Don't you understand that you were bought with a price? Yes, salvation is free to you. That offer is free to you. But it was very costly to Jesus. It cost his own life. He purchased you by his blood. And you are not your own. Judas never gives Jesus ownership of his life. Yet in this moment, he tries to play along as one of Jesus' true followers. Knowing what he knows, Judas has the grave audacity to ask Jesus the question, is it I? Jesus responds to Judas' question by saying, you have said so. It seems like a strange response, but what Jesus is doing is affirming Judas' question without throwing him under the bus. When Jesus responds this way, Judas absolutely knows that Jesus is aware of what he's about to do. Now, Judas is just one example of one of the disciples betraying Jesus. It's a very uh, severe betrayal, but we actually see it further in verses 30 through 35. Take a look at those verses. After the meal, they sent out for the Mount of Olives. And as they were walking, Jesus says that actually all the disciples are going to fall away that very night. And then he quotes a prophecy from Zechariah 13, which gives us a good illustration about how when a shepherd is struck down, the sheep will be scattered. The sheep are utterly lost without uh, when they have no shepherd. And this is what is going to happen to the disciples. Jesus is telling them, just as the sheep scatter when they lose their shepherd, you will scatter as I am struck down. Now, of course, Peter is the one who decides to chime in boldly. He puts on that real proud exterior that he's often known for, and he kind of puffs himself up and says, now, I don't know about these other guys. I don't know, Jesus, about these other 11. They may fall away, but me, not me. I I will always follow you, Jesus. I'm a a good friend. I'm never going to fall away. I'll I'll stand by you even when the night becomes dark. When your world comes crashing down, I'll be there, man. You, You can count on me. And Jesus responds, oh, Peter, Peter. Not only are you going to abandon me like the rest of the disciples, but you are going to actively deny me. You are going to deny me three times before the night is even over. Peter, you're going to betray me and abandon me and actively deny me 
within the next couple of hours. At the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of betrayal from just one disciple, Judas. Um, But now he's saying that they're all going to betray him. They're all going to desert him. Their loyalty will be severely tested in the coming hours, and they will all fail. And sure enough, as Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you look ahead all the way to verse 56, we read, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is now left alone in the hands of his enemies. He will experience suffering and death with no one at his side. In his trial, there will be no witnesses to testify on his behalf. At his darkest hour, there is no one to stand by him. He experiences pain and grief unlike any other man who has ever walked the earth. He was a man of sorrows. This is what the prophet Isaiah calls him in Isaiah 53. And I want you to listen to what this prophet writes about Jesus in this regard. It says that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the dark circumstance that we're currently facing in this pandemic right now, in the midst of this pandemic, do you feel suffering? Do you feel pain in the situation? Do you have anxiety? Perhaps you're sitting there saying, I feel so lonely in such a desperate circumstance. As pain and suffering and loneliness set in, look to the man of sorrows himself, the righteous one, Jesus himself, who took on your pain, who bore your suffering. Because here is the great hope in Christ. That while we, like sheep, have gone astray, that while we abandon Jesus, while we don't initially stand by Jesus, he stands by us. As he identifies with us in his suffering, while we share our suffering with him, those who repent and turn to him also share in his glory. Peter, the disciple who denies Jesus three times, would later go on to write a couple of the the books in the Bible. And this is what he writes in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Take a look at it. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's the great hope in our passage today, in that while Peter would fall away, and while he would deny Jesus three times, he had the great joy in seeing God's glory revealed through Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter got to experience firsthand what it meant to be restored to Jesus by the grace of Jesus. This is a gloomy passage, and it's a very sad circumstance as Jesus predicts his death and as he predicts the betrayal and as he predicts the abandonment of his closest followers. However, Jesus does provide us a silver lining in that he predicts two more events. First, in verse 32, Jesus says, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is a promise from Jesus that he will be raised and that they will be reunited. And if you're familiar with the end of the book of John, you'll know that Galilee is the location that Jesus officially restores Peter. Their friendship, their relationship, which was broken by death, will soon be restored. Just as the shepherd was struck down, and the sheep were scattered, the raising up of this shepherd will have the opposite effect. It will bring the sheep back into the fold. That's the first prediction, that he would be raised and that they would be reunited. The second prediction is a promise directly for us in verse 29. It affects you and me personally. Uh, in verse 29, after explaining that the cup is the covenant in his blood, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is predicting that God's kingdom will come and we will enjoy fellowship with Jesus himself in all of his glory. And so while there is pain and suffering and loneliness and sin, those who repent and embrace the death of Jesus, embrace his broken body and embrace his poured out blood, they will be restored in final glory when Jesus comes again. And he predicts this in a very unique way during the Last Supper. I mentioned earlier that there were traditionally four cups of wine that they would drink at the Passover meal. The fourth cup was called the cup of praise. It was the final part of the meal. It was the last thing um, that, that they would drink. And it was a cup of consummation that pointed to God taking his people to be their God and for them to, to be his own. In the gospel accounts, there is no mention of Jesus taking this fourth cup, drinking this fourth cup. It's glaringly absent from the text in all of the Gospels. And even Jesus says, I will not drink this wine again until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Some scholars believe that this was intentional. 
that Jesus intentionally didn't drink the fourth cup. And when he says that he won't drink again, he's referring to the fourth cup, the cup of praise, that cup that represents God taking his people to be his own once and for all. He's saying that I will drink that cup with you when God's kingdom has finally been established. And so it's something that you and I, if you are in Christ, have to look forward to. We know that Jesus experienced death on our behalf. We know that he experienced abandonment, that he was a man of sorrows. But we also know that he is risen and one day will return in full glory. And when that day comes, there will be a banquet for all those that are in Jesus. And we will celebrate a feast with King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, Father, I thank you for the reminder that you have given us, a reminder that we are now going to participate in that points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would celebrate this and reflect on this in this moment of what Jesus truly came to do. And I would ask, Father, that if there's anybody who hears your word preached in this moment, that their eyes would be opened to the wonderful sacrifice, that precious sacrifice that Jesus laid down his life on their behalf. And they would submit to him and declare him as Savior and Lord. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. When I come to communion, I have the frame of mind that I need to remember what Jesus did for me on the cross when he died. And that's correct theology. As I was thinking about communion this week, though, I specifically thought of our current circumstances, of our health crisis and quarantine and financial instability. What I need to remember today is that God has not forgotten me, and you need to remember that as well, that God has not forgotten you either. And this reminds me of part of our family history. This goes back 18 years ago when we were uprooting our family from Southern California and moving to York, Pennsylvania. Our children were much younger, obviously, between the ages of 11 and 3. We suddenly found ourselves within driving distance of Cindy's sister, who lived in Florida, and her family. And we decided to take a family vacation to Orlando. Our big outing for this vacation was a day at SeaWorld. There were 10 of us, four reasonably responsible adults who were tasked with keeping track of six very energetic and excited kids. We found ourselves counting blonde heads about every five to 10 minutes, making sure that nobody was lost. And during one of those counts, you guessed it, we counted only five children. You can imagine the panic that each one of us felt at that time. One adult was left to watch, actually cling to the rest of the children while the other three adults were yelling and frantically yelling that child's name. We were desperate to find our six-year-old son, Chad. We even alerted security, and they were also looking, although I'm sure not as frantically as we were. 
Terry, Cindy's sister, took the unlost kids to the next attraction, which we had determined ahead of time. And can you imagine her surprise when she arrived at that next attraction and found Chad sitting calmly in the front row waiting for the show to start? She called all of us on our cell phones, and yes, in 2002, that was a fairly new device, and boy, were we grateful to have them. And she told us that Chad was already there waiting for us. So we all raced over there and got there and probably smothered him with hugs and tears as we were so glad to see him. Now, I've described how we felt when we found Chad when he was lost, but I haven't described to you how Chad felt. He told us he wasn't the least bit concerned. He had his map of SeaWorld in his hand. He knew where we were headed, and he figured that we were probably smart enough to figure out to look at the map and find our way there as well. Here's my point. Chad wasn't worried because he was confident that we would find him. Are you feeling a bit lost right now? Are you feeling that during these times of trying times, these confusing times, that God may have lost track of you? That maybe he has too much on his mind to be concerned about your anxiety, about your circumstances? If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are one of God's precious adopted children. God has not forgotten you. You have never been moved from the forefront of his mind. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of anything, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So as we take the bread and the cup this morning, let us remember what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. Let's thank him and praise him for his sufficient payment for our sins. And let's be comforted in the knowledge that God has not forgotten us, and he never will. Let's take a few minutes for prayer, and I'm going to guide you through some prayer points. Thank God for the plan of salvation and for loving us while we were still his enemies. Thank Jesus for dying on the cross as payment for the penalty of your sins and bringing reconciliation for you to God the Father. And thank the Holy Spirit that he has never forgotten you and that he is your comforter and that he lives within you. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers today. Amen. If you are a Christ follower, whether you call FAC your home church or not, we encourage you to, to partake of communion together with us. So take your bread, whatever you have prepared. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat the bread now.
And let's prepare our juice now. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink together. God, we are so grateful for what you have done for us, that while we were still at enmity with you, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And when he went back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us always. Father, we are so grateful that you will never forget us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, 
love is free indeed. Now my daddy's paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus filled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. When the sun sets free, oh, is free. Hey, thanks for joining us, church. I do want to close out our time with a benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. God bless.